0: G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Flyrods, Abel, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow Fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered.
1: Hi, I'm Casey Pfeiffer. I'm a fly fisher from the Barossa Valley in South Australia. I'm into competition fly fishing and travelling anywhere I can over the globe to catch different species on fly.
0: G'day, Casey. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. It's been a while since we last spoke when um, you and Lubin were in Harvey Bay and popped into Tack World and said good day. So, yeah, it's going to be good to find out a bit more about what you've been up to and a bit of your fishing history.
1: Yeah, it's been a few years.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think um, COVID definitely um, put a few spanners in the work, so.
1: Absolutely. I think we were lucky to get over your way in the first place, uh, but we definitely copped the uh, later lockdowns of COVID.
0: Yeah. Well, we might first of all just dive into um, when you first started getting into fishing and then eventually how you progressed to um, fly fishing from there. So if you want to just, yeah, tell us a bit about how you got into the sport to start with.
1: Yeah, I was always super keen on fishing, uh, I used to bait fish on Lake Ilden uh, while my siblings skied and swam and all that sort of thing. I used to beg my dad to take me fishing whenever I could. Uh, once I moved to South Australia, I started uh, spin fishing a bit more with soft plastics and that sort of thing. And uh, through a well, through my old roommate, I ended up picking up a really cheap, Fly fishing combo and getting out uh, on the local creek chasing some red fin and on the Murray fishing for carp. Yeah, so it was really uh, carp that got me hooked on the fly fishing. Uh, it's it's still my favourite species to catch on fly.
0: I I guess with the carp too, they can be quite spooky. Like they're a fish that um, in shallow water they can tail and that sort of thing. So you can be on sight casting them and. Um, plenty of different patterns and techniques you can use to catch them as well.
1: Yeah, and we've got waters here where you can, especially when the water's high, you can fish the edges. Uh, the water's quite clear, but because they can't see very well, you've got to be really particular out where you land your cla- where you land your cast. And uh, I mean, they fight really hard, so it's always good fun on uh, lightweight gear.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's some absolute slobs of carp out there. I've caught them a couple of times down at Lismore and. Um, it's always interesting to the different colorations that you can get out of them like sometimes it might be a pure goldfish other times they might be half white half gold so it's always interesting to see what you land
1: yeah we've even got some down this way that are like black and I've caught them in New Zealand and I've seen some really huge uh, like orange bright orange goldfish carp like koi carp that are crazy
0: that's pretty cool. <laughs> and yeah. when, did, um, when did trout come into the picture? Was that before or after you met Lubin?
1: Uh, that was after. Uh, <laughs> the first time I went trout fishing was at Lake Tolondo when there was water in it. So quite a few years ago now. Uh, and it was fishing pretty well and it was a, a horrible day. I was really not, <laughs> not good at casting yet and I spent 12 hours pulling sinking lines, like three and fives. And Lubin, I think he got me, it was either 17 or 19 nil <laughs> by the end of the day. And he was just catching like whopper after whopper because back in the day Tolondo, Londo, you could catch plenty of, you know, five, six pound Browns, uh, yeah. just one after the other on a good day. Um, uh, and I'm I'm not sure why. Maybe that says something about my personality, but <laughs> getting walloped actually made me want to do it more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you sound a lot like my wife. She's very competitive and um yeah, if you outdo her in something, she's gotta come back bigger and better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I've never been able to get to that point, but uh <laughs> I've definitely learnt a lot the last ten years.
0: Yeah. I guess it would have been a pretty steep learning curve at the start, but Lubin's a pretty bloody fishy bloke. So you've, you've had a good teacher and a a good person to fish with as well. Like it's, it's always good fishing with people that um, sort of know more than you and that, that are excited about it. So,
1: Oh, absolutely. And having access to gear, um, fly tying, just anytime you've got a question, someone's got an answer for you. And it's, uh, I think the the biggest thing for me was when I started the competition fishing very shortly after I started trout fishing, it might've been six months, uh, and I jumped in right in the deep end and I went to Tasmania and fished a river comp, and I'd never fished a river for trout, <laughs> uh, and I met some really fantastic people and, you know, one had to help me cross the river, the other tied my flies on for me. <laughs> net my fish for me like a really helpful bunch so uh, i was very lucky to get in with uh, a crowd like that early on that could really help
0: yeah and i guess too like especially river fishing there is like a bit of an art to it like waiting in itself is quite tricky particularly if rivers river is sort of up a bit um and then you've also got you've got to be able to read the water You've got to think of, right, what fly am I going to tie on or what flies am I going to tie on, how I'm going to rig everything. So it would have been a very steep learning curve for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, and I know my first year of maybe even two years of comps, um, I had plenty of sessions where I didn't catch anything, particularly on lakes. <laughs> River, rivers I find a little bit easier to read, but the lakes I really struggled with. Uh for the first two years, I'm, I'm not even sure I caught a fish in sessions, but, you know, just went out there and kept giving it a go and kept talking to people and learning, and uh, now I'm pretty strong on a lake.
0: <laughs> and I guess, too, you've, um, over the years, too, you would have met more and more people and talked techniques and got to fish alongside them, so you can always yeah, learn something from other people and they can learn from you. So it's always great networking. Um, I think fly fishers are quite good at that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, some of my best friends have come from, uh, you know, early days chats about drought fishing.
0: And you got to go over to the States with Lubin when he was competing over there in the World Championships, didn't you? That was in um, Colorado, I think.
1: Yeah, Colorado was, I think, 2016. So a few years ago now. Uh, and again, that was, it was pretty early days on my fly fishing. Uh, and I thought, you know what? He's going over, they practice with the team for a week or two before. So I spent a couple of weeks uh fishing through uh Texas and Louisiana for uh bass and redfish, which yeah, was cool, that's awesome. Pretty good fun. And that was my first sort of taste of solo fishing trips, and I I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I guess you have to um, figure out a lot for yourself and um, you've got to really reflect on a lot of those things.
1: Yep. Yeah, it's a a whole different experience uh, fishing with people versus fishing on your own, especially for species that you've never fished for before in places that you've never fished before.
0: (laughs) It'd be quite a rewarding feeling too because then you go, well, you haven't had someone sort of spoon feed you the information and You've had to um, yeah, work out a completely different species, different location, and, yeah, hats off to you for that. That's great.
1: Yeah, it's uh, probably one of the most enjoyable types of fishing is fishing in new places for me when you don't know anything about it.
0: With the competition side of fishing, like, in the early days when you were doing it, were you, like, in that back then or was it mainly, like, just, yeah, what sort of techniques were you using?
1: Uh, in the US, that was kind of the first taste that the australian team had of nymphing at a at an international i think the year before the team had brought back some information from i think it was slovakia uh, and they sort of got the basics from that competition Uh, and when they went back to the u.s that was the first time they they really got into it yeah. Um, I definitely was not Euro-nymphing. I had an eight weight and a floating line, <laughs> <laughs> um, because I had been fishing for other species. Uh, and I ended up fishing as, a, um, a ghost angler in the world championships, which means your scores don't count towards an individual score, but you're, uh, making sure the water has been fished evenly. And uh, you get to go on the bus with all of the competitors and go to the training sessions and all that sort of stuff. So it was still a pretty cool experience. Probably not ideal with an eight weight, um, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I made it work.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I guess just the atmosphere, like being surrounded by all those people, and again drawing from their knowledge. Like it, um, you can't really buy those sort of experiences.
1: No, it was uh, it was pretty pretty incredible to be able to do and totally unexpected because i only found out sort of the day before that that's that that was happening (laughs) i think the mongolian team a couple of them got turned around at customs uh and they had to fill those spots pretty quickly so i uh i thought why not
0: yeah and i guess too like over there you'd also um like your fly choices and that sort of thing would be quite different to what you guys were used to fishing in like Tasmania and Victoria and places like that?
1: I had absolutely no idea. Hey, um, this was six months into fly fishing and I had – I was clueless to it all. So I, <laughs> I fished my whole thing with a dry fly. I never put on a nymph. Uh, even on the lake, I fished a dry fly. <laughs> Uh, and you know, I managed to catch fish every session, which was fantastic. And it seems like fish in Colorado are pretty happy to come up and eat off the surface, <laughs> even in a really big run with like white water, they're happy to come up and eat a dry. <laughs> but, um, I think at that stage there was not any sort of finesse about it at all. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, and then, in was it two thousand and eighteen that you started getting a bit more serious about the competition fishing when you and um Lubin did up your van Kevin and started yeah traveling around and focusing more on the comps?
1: yeah, Lubin was uh, sort of wrapping up his competition fishing uh, I think that I'm just as I was on the way into it, so. Luba was more than happy to come to the competitions with me, you know, help me wherever he could, but it probably wasn't a priority of his. But <laughs> he's always happy to go trout fishing. Uh, I say always, as long as there's no cod to catch. He's, <laughs> he's, ha- he's happy to go trout fishing as long as there's no cod. Um, so, yeah, we spent summers in Tasmania and that meant that I could, you know, fish in three comps or four comps throughout summer, in tassie and then on the way there or back i could fish a comp or two in victoria or new south wales so i really got opportunity to fish them a lot which you know when you're in south australia there are no competitions here so it was quite hard before we were traveling to to carve out the time to go and do that uh but when you're already there it's it's very easy to just sort of you know have a look at the calendar and you know, book your ferry dates according to what's on.
0: And while you were doing that sort of thing as well, like living out of the van and travelling and prepping for these comps, you were um, doing a bit of commercial fly tying and writing for a few magazines and that sort of thing as well?
1: Yeah, that was um, how we both made our money on the road. <laughs> uh, we are on a pretty tight budget. Lubin was working for Big Angry Fish in New Zealand at that time. Um, you know, I'd been working in a winery for six years or something and uh, it was not a long-term goal to go on travel in a van. So it's not like we had some big kitty of savings to, <laughs> to live off. Uh, we were definitely, you know, living week to week in the van. And even during summer I would, um, you know, work at a, a winery in Tasmania or something like that or during winter. Uh, when we would go cod fishing for months on end, I would pick up work in a restaurant or a salad door or something like that. <laughs>
0: Someone's got to work while the other one's cod fishing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's got to be done.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess you would have to be pretty strict with the budget and that sort of thing. And it'd be definitely a um, bit of a change going from like a whole house or a unit to both being confined to a van where you've basically got your bed, your cooking gear, your tying bench, like everything has to fit in that van. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was uh, minimalistic for sure. Um, Kevin, Kevin's not a big fan either. We were lucky that we took the boat most places. So some of the fishing gear could go in the boat, but for the most part, it all had to fit in the van. Um, and not just fly fishing gear, because Lubin does a lot of spin fishing as well. So we had to fit everything in there.
0: Yeah, and I guess, too, with his um, YouTube channel, too, you've then also got all the all the camera gear and that sort of thing. So, like, you would really would have to um, pack the essentials and try and yeah, get rid of the dead weight. Absolutely. And when you're doing, like, um, on a lead-up to a competition, what's your training schedule like? Are you fishing sort of every day or is it every few days? Or
1: Oh, look, while we were in the van, we fished every day. Um, there was, you know, as long as the season was open, We were out somewhere um, and not – I mean, my least favourite thing to do is go out and pummel a competition venue because you know that there's going to be a comp there in a month's time. I just don't see the point of it. I don't find it enjoyable. So I would much rather go to somewhere I've never been before and try and work some things out uh, in a new place. And I think all of that is valuable information to have uh, in the back of your mind when you get into a comp because no matter how much you practice a certain venue you get there the wind flows from a di- different direction on that day and everything changes
0: and i guess too you might learn something there that you, you might be able to apply at that venue like you it might be slightly similar in some aspects um so then you can go ahead and go right oh well i learned this on another venue maybe i'll try it here and see if it works
1: yeah absolutely um And because it's something new, I think you're paying better attention to what's happening. I think if you are on the same venues all the time, you can go into autopilot a little bit.
0: Get a bit complacent. Uh,
1: Yeah, and potentially miss out on something that's working better than the thing you're usually doing. Yeah, so my favourite thing to do is is drive. (laughs) You see a bit of water, you cross a bridge, you stop, you get in, you fish it.
0: Is there a fair bit of support too for the um, competition fishermen in Australia or is it it's something that's sort of lacking compared to um, the States in Europe?
1: Oh, we're, yeah, we're, we're very far behind. A lot of the uh, European countries are uh, paid by their government or their fishing body to fish. So their top anglers, their top team can go out and fish every day. Um, in Australia, even our top guys they either work a full-time job or if they're out in the water, they're usually a guide. So they're yeah. not actually fishing themselves. And, yeah, they're seeing what's happening every day and that's definitely going to, you know, help them be a better angler. But it's not the same as being out there yourself every day fishing.
0: Yeah, I guess that's the, that's the hard thing. Like over here in Australia, fishing has always been very much a um, just a hobby or a pastime, whereas you look at other countries and they see it. Um, like an elite sport basically, so um, that'd be a massive leg up for those guys,
1: yeah. And it's not just fly fishing, I think that's the thing. We, we, other than the very new sort of bass tournaments that have been happening over the last few years in Australia, there hasn't even been any spin fishing competition. Whereas in the UK, um, Europe, there's you know carp fishing tournaments, and uh. Yeah, there's there's so many different things within the competition scene for fishing uh, in particularly and Europe in Europe.
0: And I guess too, you have to look at their population in comparison to ours as well. Um, like the numbers are definitely there as well to support it. So,
1: oh for sure. And water is another big thing because you have to have the water that holds trout. Uh, and you know we have three states that do, uh, so a relatively small portion of the population can even access those waters.
0: And I guess we're pretty lucky here in Australia that like, we've got access to a lot of public water as opposed to places like the UK where a lot of it you've got to be part of a club or yeah, get private access.
1: Oh, absolutely. The, the angler access in New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania is fantastic. Um, South Australia, it it doesn't exist. (laughs) We don't have a fishing licence, therefore we don't have any rights to any water. Um, You know, the local fly club's got, you know, some dams and a little stretch of a river, um, like a running river, and then a couple of uh, still water rivers. Uh, But we just don't have have the water and the public access like the other states do.
0: I guess another thing we... um... Like especially for you guys with your competition stuff, we're fairly lucky to have New South uh, New Zealand, sorry, on our doorstep. Because um, for a lot of people that have to travel across the world for it, like it's literally a few hour flight. Um, you guys spent a bit of time over there, and I think it was was it three years ago you were over there for the Commonwealth um, Championships.
1: Yeah, we've we've spent quite a bit of time in New Zealand. Um, a few years ago, I think it's twenty nineteen. We were over there for, a, for about two months, maybe a bit more. Um, I can't really remember, but uh, we are lucky enough to be able to borrow a friend's van, <laughs> even smaller than Kevin, <laughs> and we lived out of that for a couple of months, um, trout fishing and saltwater fishing. We did a lot of, like, snapper and kingfishing on the flats um, right up north, so uh, that was pretty fantastic. And then the next year we came back for the Commonwealths, um, which was amazing, so it was based uh, – Out of, of Turangi wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, round Turangi.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was actually there. I think it was two or three weeks before the actual competition, and I remember seeing the signs up at Turangi. There, is it the Creel Tackle House, the um shop there? Yeah, Yeah. I remember seeing that and talking to the owner or the original owner. Um, And then I, I kept up with how you guys were going throughout that competition on Facebook, and it was good to see like how highly you guys placed in that comp.
1: Yeah, it was was a fantastic competition. New Zealand's always great because there are fish to catch. Um, You don't sort of go to any piece of water and and wonder if you can pull a fish out of it. Uh, So good angling really pays off. (laughs) Um,
0: I was pretty blown away with, like, I caught up with um, Yoshi over there in Rotorua and went fishing with him for a day. And I was just amazed. Like I'd never trout fish before and the number of fish in there and how willing they were to come up and either take a dry off the top or take an imp under the dry. And then just while we were road tripping around the North Island there, like pulling up the Tongariro, standing up on the bank and just watching, I think they were feeding on those um, passion vine hoppers, just taking them off the top so delicately. And it was just unreal to see these big fish um, just so willing to feed and saw a couple of the locals down there fishing. And yeah, they got some really nice browns and rainbows.
1: Oh, absolutely! It's um, it's fantastic fishing in the north. I've never fished the south. I've, I can't tell you how many times I've been to the North Island, uh, and I've never ventured south. I I do plan to eventually, but I next trips north again.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> and in that competition for the Commonwealth, you came away with the first for the women's division and seventh in the open, didn't
1: you? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was really good good comp. It was the competition where everything sort of finally came together for me. And, uh, I've been a lot more consistent in my, uh, outcomes since then. Uh, particularly on the lakes. I spent an entire season in Tasmania, pretty much solely fishing lakes, uh, because it was such a weakness of mine <laughs> and I really didn't enjoy it. <laughs> Uh, but after spending so much time out there, now I understand it more and I find that I really do enjoy it. Uh, and New Zealand was two lake sessions. Uh, and I went into it uh, worried about the lakes. And, like, I knew that I would I would perform fine on the rivers. Uh, but the lakes were were a bit of a thing. And, unfortunately, I got them last two sessions, which means that, you know, the whole competition you sort of <laughs> – focusing on those last sessions uh but as it turned out i i fished them pretty well and i was pretty happy with with how it all went
0: and with the um the lake side of the competition over there is it like your lock style fishing where you're sitting down in a boat or
1: yeah so there's two anglers in a boat and you sort of measure each other's fish um so catching fish early on is a real advantage because it's quite annoying to have to stop fishing to measure someone else's fish so if you're the one who's already got one you know in the net then you can start fishing again
0: yeah okay and is Uh, there like in in regards to the rules are there quite strict rules with how long a leader you can fish and that sort of thing or
1: yeah there's there's rules um so say you've got you know a euro nymphing leader, you've got a dry fly leader, you've got a nymph under dry, you've got pulling leaders. There's just one rule that covers leaders. Yeah. Uh, so there's not sort of one rule for each each thing, uh, but there's also you know the distance between the flies, um, the maximum size of the bead that you can have. Of course, all the flies have to be barbless and not just uh, crushed barbs, but chemically. Sharpened barbless, designed barbless hooks, um, and there's there's other rules about you know how the boat has to be positioned, um, and when you're in a boat like that and you've got two people fishing, you you have one section each, so you can't cast to a fish that rises in the other person's section. Yeah, okay. Uh, so it's it's uh, strategic about how you place the boat. Uh, in each particular wind, coming into different banks, and, yeah, it's uh, pretty specific.
0: Yeah, okay. And are you using, like, a drogue or a sea anchor to help with those drifts to slow it down a bit? or?
1: Yeah, depending on the day. Um, all of the boats have to be fitted with a drogue uh, for a competition. On days with a little or no wind, obviously you're not going to throw the drogue out, uh, but on very windy days you wouldn't be without it.
0: Yeah, and I guess too, like having those lake rounds, it'd be really good at making you a well-rounded angler um, as opposed to just fishing rivers. Like you also have to know your way around a boat and how to operate that drogue efficiently just so that you do get the right drifts. And um, yeah, it'd definitely be a good thing for your fly fishing arsenal.
1: Yeah, I mean, steering a drogue is a skill in itself because you don't just chuck it out the back and, you know, let it do its thing. If you pull it one direction, it, it does steer the boat to an extent.
0: And when you're fishing out of the boat there, are you fishing like a team of flies or are you fishing streamers? How are you typically targeting the trout?
1: New Zealand was was all either nymphing on uh, a slow sinking line, so a slow intermediate or an intermediate, uh, or on the windier sessions pulling wets. uh, And I think the whole time I would have had three flies on um, no matter what technique I was using.
0: Is it vastly different in Australia, fishing the lakes here in the comps? or
1: uh, It can be, uh, especially in Tasmania. Uh, it's just every day it changes so dramatically, dependent on, on the weather and the wind. Um, anyone who's fished penstock or pain stock before knows that you can go out one day and the fish will be on and they'll be all over the dries and there'll be a hatch and it'll be fantastic. And uh, It doesn't seem to matter what you do, you'll catch fish. And then there'll be days when it looks like it should be amazing and nothing happens for anyone. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, and then you find that something really strange uh, was the thing that caught the fish. So putting on something really bright and gaudy or ripping woolly buggers on a really deep sinking line as fast as possible is what catches them that day uh but no other day
0: <laughs> so you've got to be willing to um do a bit of experimentation and to see what's going to pin them on the day
1: yeah i think everyone goes in with a bit of a plan once they see the water and they know you know the direction of the wind and how windy it's going to be uh but you know if if you feel like you should be catching more fish, then you need to be willing to change. Or if you feel like you uh, you just need to catch that one or maybe two fish and stick them, then you really want to just pick the technique that you're best at, that yeah. you know you're going to land that fish when it eats.
0: And I guess too, you'd have to um, really be able to adapt with the weather and the conditions because you might have a great game plan in the back of your mind then wake up on the day and it could be raining sideways or the wind could have shifted direction. So you'd really have to be able to go, righto, what can I do now? Try and pull a rabbit out of the hat.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, the World Championships in Tassie, I mean, I didn't fish it. I was controlling. Uh, But Little Pine was like cyclonic snow for five days straight in the middle of summer.
0: (laughs) That's um, a bit, bit, oh, I guess not for down there. It's not unheard of. But, yeah, it definitely puts a spanner in the works for you.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: (laughs) How do um, people get into controlling? Like, would you say it's a great way if you want to get into competition fishing? Like, before you start actually fishing them, do you think being a controller is a good way to start it or...?
1: Oh, absolutely. A lot of the competition anglers start off by controlling. Uh, Usually, the state rounds, you control each other. So, you fish a two-hour session and then uh, the other angler fishes for two hours while you control them. Uh, But the nationals... (laughs) Uh, every year we're always looking for controllers. So this year it's in New South Wales uh, and there's usually either two or three lake, uh, sorry, two lake sessions and three uh, river sessions. That's That's about normal. It does change depending where and time of year and everything, but that's pretty standard. So if you've got, say, 50 competitors, that means that you need... 30 controllers just to uh, look after the river sections so we do we are always looking for people and chances are at a nationals you're going to see at least one or two of the three competitors you would see uh sorry five competitors you would see over the course of five sessions at least two or three of them are going to be pretty decent uh, you've, you've just got a chance to, to learn something, to, to speak to people who know what it's all about. And everyone who's gone into comp fishing has gone through the same thing where they've had to start out at some point.
0: And with being a controller, what does that actually involve? Like, what tasks do they have to do? And if someone did want to um, give it a crack, what's the best way for them to do it? Is there like a website they should go on and put their name forward or someone they need to call?
1: Yeah, there's uh, the website is. Flyfish Australia, and uh, there's a Facebook page as well. And whenever we need controllers, we put the call out uh, on social media and on the website. Uh, and it's basically you go along for the three days and uh, you measure the fish and you just make sure that the competitor that you're controlling for that three hour session follows the rules. So it might be checking the flies don't have barbs, checking the length of leaders, making sure that they fish within their beat so they don't go uh, above or below the marker and making sure they know where they're actually fishing. Uh, So that's kind of part of the responsibility of being controller is, is knowing where to go, which (laughs) you always get shown where you're going to be controlling. You don't just get a map and get pointed in a general direction and, They say, just go for it. They tell you what the rules are and they show you the beat so that you know exactly what's going on.
0: Yeah, and with your beat, so you've got a dedicated part of the river and is that for your two-hour session and then you rotate to a different beat or...?
1: Yep. Um, So usually in a nationals it's three hours or any international comp is three hours. Uh, So most controllers stay on the same beat for the whole competition so they get to see how different anglers... Approach the same piece of water, uh, and the competitors uh, rotate between each venue.
0: Yeah, okay. It's um, yeah. There's definitely a lot more to it than meets the eye, I guess.
1: Yeah. Once you once you know the basics, it's it's pretty simple to follow. Uh, the scoring system and ranking system is not easy to follow. Never has been, uh, but. The actual fishing side of things, pretty easy going.
0: Yeah. And is there like a maximum number of competitors per competition? Like do they have to cap it? Because I imagine like with our fishing population here, it's not massive sort of thing. So it's not like you're going to have hundreds and hundreds of people that want to compete. But is there a cutoff as to how many per venue or?
1: Yeah, it just depends on the venue. So uh, some of the competitions in Victoria in the past have been 20 anglers. That's for smaller venues like uh the Stevenson Rubicon, uh, even the Goulburn, just because of water levels. we've sometimes had to cut it back to twenty. Uh, in Tasmania, usually we can get twenty four to thirty in a river comp. Uh, and in new south Wales the the major river comp is the Tumut, and it's so popular that they ended up running two. Um, and I think there's either 28 or 30 anglers in each and it still fills up, uh, for both. So yeah, there, there are definitely, um, caps, but usually you've got like a week or two to enter any competition and you, you get in if you want to.
0: Yeah. And then I guess once you get to, um, like your finals and that sort of thing, it just comes down to a ranking system, how many points per venue you've got and goes from there.
1: Yeah, so it's your um, your best two state rounds are what put you into the nationals, and then uh, your nationals and your best two state rounds from several years go towards being uh, chosen for a team, for an international. Yeah.
0: And you just got back from... Um representing Australia again over in Norway. Let's talk a little bit about that competition.
1: Yeah, so this was supposed to happen in 2020, yeah, 2020. Um, and, of course, it was cancelled because of COVID and then it was changed to last year to Italy and, of course, that was cancelled as well. So we all back to Norway. Um, we only got to book everything maybe four or five months out Uh, just because up until that point, it wasn't really, uh, a given that we would actually go, uh, but we did end up. So it was the first of the women's world fly fishing championships. Uh, there were, I think 16 teams, maybe 12. There might've been 12 teams. Um, uh, majority of course were from Europe. Uh, but there were also teams from uh, South Africa, from the UK as well, and America. So pretty widespread.
0: And I think there was actually a, um article in the latest Fly Life. that is it Karen Brooks? I think she wrote an article about it.
1: I can't say I've seen it, but yeah. it could be. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think she um, she did a recent article about competition fishing and that sort of thing. So yeah.
1: Yeah, well, Karen was in the of the team. That's the second time she's represented Australia because she went to a master's in South Africa a few years ago.
0: Yeah, okay. That's oh, her um, third
1: time because she was at, in New Zealand as well.
0: <laughs> bloody hell, <laughs> starting to get up there. Yeah. And from there, you went on to Bosnia and did a bit of a solo trip.
1: Yeah, well, I thought if I'm going to fly halfway across the country... Uh, sorry, not the country, the world (laughs) (laughs) a bit further, (laughs) I might as well make the most of it. Uh, so yeah, I was in Norway for two weeks and then I spent another two weeks in, in Bosnia. Uh, very, very cool place. Some of the, not some of the best fishing I've had on freshwater rivers. It was, it was phenomenal.
0: I was keeping up with some of your Instagram videos, and it just looked unreal. Like gin clear water, and the landscape just looked beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's all spring-fed rivers. Um, like beautiful gravel bottom. The wading is super cruisy. Um, uh, the fish are everywhere. It's just grayling and brown trout galore. It's all wild fish. Um, and uh, the fish weren't easy to catch especially at that time of year because during the day it was sort of 38 40 degrees so uh, we would fish from sort of seven o'clock in the morning till about midday go and have lunch and then go back for a nap and <laughs> then you would <laughs> you would go back out at five o'clock and you'd fish until dark so you fish until nine ten o'clock and then go out for dinner I think I even
0: saw a photo of you beer in hand fishing as well, so that's good to see.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, the biggest, (laughs) the biggest fish of my trip, I hooked while I had a rather large beer in my hand, (laughs) and it was open, so I had to sort of, you know, wiggle around with it between my knees when I was winding, or try and chase the fish with it in my hand.
0: You might have um, to um, hit up Renee for one of those. Um, they need to make a Sims foam dome where you can just have it on you on your lid there with a straw. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, usually I'm wading so deep that that's not an option. So it was real luxury fishing. <laughs> 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 it was it was so different coming from Norway where the rivers were all flooded and everyone was at least pit deep. Um, you were constantly filling your waders because you just had to get that little bit further out to get to those grayling. Uh, And then, you know, you turn up in Bosnia and it's beautiful sunshine every day and, you know, the water, (laughs) the rivers only knee to thigh deep (laughs) and you can see every fish you cast to.
0: (laughs) It would have been a good, um, just like an unwind after doing the comp thing to just do a bit of relaxing fishing and be able to have a beer and wind back a bit.
1: Yeah, it was it was fantastic and just the, the quality of the fish, the size the average size of the fish there was amazing. Uh, and just all dry fly fishing. It's like every now and then if they were being really finicky, you might put a nymph on and sight fish to them with a like a size twenty two nymph. Like a tiny, tiny little pheasant tail or something. But I'd say ninety five percent of the time you're fishing with a dry.
0: I guess that would be heaven for most trout fishers, being able to um, just target them on the dry on top. So.
1: Absolutely, and actually sight fishing, not waiting for a rise, but actually targeting a specific fish.
0: That's pretty cool. <laughs> was it yeah. easy getting around Bosnia or was it a bit difficult? Like, Were there language barriers or anything like that? Or
1: uh, I don't really know because I rocked up to the airport, you know, at 1 o'clock in the morning or something. Uh walked out the front doors and it's a tiny airport. I mean like it's it's one terminal. It's it's just one room that you walk into and out of. <laughs> um and I walked out the front, there was just a, a guy holding like a crumpled piece of paper that said fishing. <laughs> and I was like, uh is that who were you looking for? And he's like, Oh, I I'm not sure the name, but fishing. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> Okay, cool. This seems safe. Uh, his name was Boris, Boris the Bosnian, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, we we proceeded to drive like five hours into the mountains in the middle of the night. Um, but arrived safe and sound at my accommodation, which was incredible. If, if no one's seen it, Ribnik um, is oh, it's in, an incredible place. They have these beautiful little uh, huts that are, like, counter over the river. Uh, it's, it's something else. Um, and uh, my guide spoke English, and those were really the only two people that I saw, <laughs> other than the couple of people at the restaurant. Um, I met um, a couple of other competition fishermen, um, Pascal, who is French, and his friend Syed. Uh, Pascal was the first person to win. Um, I think it was five individual gold medals at world championships, um, and he just happened to be fishing the same river at the same time. Far out! <laughs> so it was great to chat with those guys, and <laughs> uh, but for the most part, it was just time on the river.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a beautiful part of the world. Like when I was looking at your photos and videos you're putting up, it's like something off a postcard. Like just yeah, so so pretty.
1: Oh yeah, um, it's, it's definitely the best place that I have visited so far,
0: um,
1: yeah. not just for fly fishing but in general and I'm already planning a trip back for next year.
0: Yeah and I guess too there'd be so much over there as well like outside of fishing if you wanted to do a bit of both sort of thing um, or if you wanted to take a partner that didn't exactly want to fish the whole time you'd be able to have a bit of a compromise and enjoy um, all the other things it's got to offer as well.
1: I guess so. <laughs> I can't but, say that. But who can. would want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. The The place where I was fishing was like right in like country, country Bosnia. It wasn't in the city or anything. So there yeah, really probably. wasn't anything else to do unless you wanted to go and like pick corn or something. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was pretty small town.
0: Yeah. Oh, that'd be yeah. unreal though like not touristy at all like just removed away from civilization a bit and just you and the river
1: oh absolutely i mean just sitting by the side of the river for a week sounds pretty good even if you don't fish
0: yeah bloody hell. as long as the beer's cold yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> well they don't use fridges at any of the restaurants they just stick a crate in the river because yep. it's all spring fed so the water's really cold <laughs>
0: Keep the um, power bill down a bit anyway, so it's good. Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's always the perfect temperature.
0: And you're you're already planning to go back to Bosnia next year, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I'm hoping to maybe uh, go to South Africa, um, Bosnia, and maybe Croatia as uh, the next sort of big trip. Uh, Because, like I say, if you're going to go that far, you might as well make the most of it.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Like, I know my um, little brother, he's been living in New Zealand. He's just moved over to Canada for a couple of years. And the funny thing is, like, he never used to fish. Now he's, like, right into his fly fishing with his wife. And he said, oh, yeah, we're thinking about going to Alaska while we're here and maybe doing a Mexico trip. And I said, you're kidding me, the kid that never fished. And I said, you're going to be ticking off all these destinations that are on my bucket list. And he said, oh, well, I might as well do it while I'm over there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, more power to him. It's um, Yeah, it's amazing the places you can go fishing.
0: Yeah. And do you have any comps over there next year or is this purely social that you're going to be doing these trips?
1: Uh, I think purely anti-social. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, I do have a social trip planned. Uh, we have a trip in March to New Zealand. Uh, we're just heading to Tauranga, and it'll just be a week long, really cruisy kind of fishing. That time of year, there's some really great dry fly fishing Um, so, you know, that's, that's my sort of cruisy, um, big trip with, with people. And then the other trip will likely be just me or I might be able to convince Lubin to go.
0: Get him, get him away from the cod for a bit.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, at the moment he's, he's hooked on the sailfish and the marlin fishing, uh, over West. So (laughs) I think he probably plans to head that way.
0: (laughs) And. You as well, like it's not always just been trout and carp and that sort of thing for you. You've got a fair bit of saltwater experience as well. Like when I met you here in Harvey Bay, uh, you and Lubin have been out in the flats getting a few goldies and queenies and that sort of thing. And from there, you did a bit of a road trip up north and ended up as far as Weeper. Um, did you want to talk about that trip a bit and sort of what species you were targeting? I know there were some unreal photos and videos of you guys chasing um permit on like floating crab flies up a Weeper. That was just unreal to watch.
1: Yeah, well, we didn't really have any intention of going that far north, but all the borders were closed and we found out that the border to Queensland was going to open the next day. So we packed the van and, and drove straight across the border and it closed again the next day. Like it was a couple of hours after we uh, got over the border that it closed again. So we were kind of like stuck there for, for a reasonable amount of time. Um so I think the first place we headed was Proserpine, uh, Barramundi, and then we went to Harvey, caught up with you, caught some goldens, and then sort of made our way up the coast um, to Cairns. So we sort of stopped and fished along the way for or anything we could find on the flights. Lim um, did some, like, Popper fishing and stuff out at Early Big Early, um, for big GTs and that sort of stuff. We caught some like long tails and a few other bits and pieces out that way. And then we had no intention of going to Weeper. And then we saw some people catching some permit, and we're like, oh, okay, might as well. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> so we started driving across, and we got you know maybe. Eight hours into the drive on that horrible red dirt road.
0: The PDR.
1: Yeah, and the corrugations were just diabolical in a van with a boat on it. Like it was so not meant for that. Uh, To be
0: honest, I'm amazed that Kevin made it all the way up there. There's some pretty horrendous stretches on that road.
1: We were doing, it was like between 40 and 60 kilometres an hour the (laughs) whole way. So what should have been an eight. You know, seven, eight-hour was like, 14 hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. it, was, it was awful. And we got so far and was like, did we make a big mistake? Do we need to turn around and go back? <laughs> uh, but we persevered. And, of course, no air conditioning in Kevin either, which means windows down. Oh, please. Okay. Um, uh, and it was, it was hot and it was dusty. And even now we're still finding red dirt in every crevice of Kevin. <laughs> Um, but when we got there, we sort of didn't really know where to go. Lubin had been to Weeper once, uh, with Big Airy Fish Boys, um, and had fished a couple of creeks and stuff, the barramundi, um, but hadn't really done any of the flats fishing. Um, so we were flying a little bit blind <laughs> and we packed up the boat. I think we bought a tent from Kmart. Um, and packed up the boat to sort of head out for three or four days at a time, maybe five days, um, and just camped on the beach. Um, and when we beach launched the boat, if you thought Kevin was good getting to Weeper in the first place, (laughs) Kev beach launched the boat (laughs) time and time again, (laughs) no, no uh,
0: land cruiser with an extended hitch <laughs>
1: <laughs> no no um so and fully loaded boat too because like there was almost no standing room uh, and it was so packed that we couldn't have any seats so i just had to stand at the front of the boat while we were cruising and it's like an hour to get to any of these rivers so uh we're like cruising out there and i s- sort of saw a big school of fish and i thought you know, I don't, I don't know what that is. Probably goldens or something. So uh, we stopped and Luvian had a couple of casts and was, you know, stripping a clouser back, and they just weren't paying any attention to it. And it was like, oh, that's because they're permit, Not goldens. <laughs> they're not gonna pay attention to a strict clouser. <laughs> um, so he chucked him a crab and and first cast hooked onto like a meter long permit and that was sort of um initiation by fire of permit fishing um because neither of us had even casted the permit before let alone hooked one
0: it made that drive Uh, on the pdr so worth it (laughs) yeah,
1: yeah yeah and uh and after that point i mean we we caught some goldens and and like little trevallis and big queenies and stuff but it was really all about chasing the permit um and they were they were quite happy to eat, like, off the top. So uh, Lubin had this pair of, you know, those god-awful, um, like, bass thongs?
0: Oh, yeah, we sell the horrible barrel ones at the shop. The kids
1: love them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. He was given a pair of those, like a trout pair. It was just a bass face painted like a trout. Um, <laughs> he was given a pair for Christmas. And for some reason, they were still in the boat uh, in, in, or in the van. Uh, so we used those, like cut them up to make the floating crabs.
0: Bit of bush so, ingenuity. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I mean, limited fire time materials in the van because you can't take everything. Um, and, yeah, it was just, it was, it was non-stop on the permit. We went out uh, for a, a day and a half, uh, our very last sort of stint out there before we headed back. And I think we caught twelve in a in a day and a half.
0: Bloody hell, that's unreal.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was unreal fishing, and they were all big. They were all like proper big permit. That's um, the thing; they
0: get a lot of big annex up there, hey.
1: Yeah, yeah, they were huge. Um, but probably the coolest thing that I caught was not a permit. I caught a um, Milky on a <laughs> crab that I was stripping because I thought it was a queenfish, <laughs> <laughs> And it, like, raced over and ate my crab. <laughs> and I was fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. I was like, it doesn't feel like a queenie because it just won't give up. And yeah, then it they just keep jumping. going
0: and going, hey?
1: Yeah, and then it started jumping and I was like, oh, that's why. Um, yeah, so it was probably probably the coolest fish. wasn't even a permit, it was a milk fish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you get a chance to um, catch a blue bastard or a tusky on the flats up there? or?
1: Yeah, yeah, caught some caught some tusky, caught some bastards. Yeah. The bastard fishing was really cool. Um, really enjoyed that. Um, I think for Lubin now that's probably his favourite species to catch on the flats is bastards. Um yeah, I'd caught some of those like, you know, sweet lips and stuff further south, um, like down early and that sort of thing. Uh, but that was the first time on the Blue Bastards and they they were really good fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, we get down here like yeah, you painted sweet lippy black all on the flats um, in a few areas but yeah, we don't get the blue bastards down this far and I know quite a few guys up north that they'll obsess with the permit and that sort of thing but after they've caught a blue bastard, it sort of shifts to that um, and that's all they want to catch.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, they, they were, good. look, I don't care if it's, as long as it's not a queenie, <laughs> I want to catch it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's the thing, hey. Like in um, in Weeper, the, the Queenie, you just like, they're just in plague proportions. Whereas down here, like the big Queenie's, like, there's no, you don't have any problems catching the small to mid sized Queenie's, but the big ones here are quite smart and wised up. Um, whereas you go up there and you could chuck just about anything and catch a queenfish.
1: Yeah, I don't ever mind catching the big ones, but catching those small ones just uh, takes time.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just a lot of
1: time to then. Get that fish in and unhook the pointy buggers and get them back in before you can cast in anything else. It's all right if they uh, spike
0: you, you can always make some nummus or something like that.
1: <laughs> oh, you gotta do what you gotta do. But uh, yeah, we 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 stayed up there. I think it was uh, maybe eight weeks or something in the end, and and then sort of headed south. And the border opened just before the wet season hit, so we we pretty much drove straight from. Cans back to the Barossa.
0: Far out, bit of a slog.
1: Yeah, big trip.
0: And you've done. Um, you've also chased bonefish over in Hawaii as well, haven't you?
1: Yeah. Well, I had. You know, when those Jetstar flights used to come on sale, and you could pick up a return trip for four hundred or five hundred bucks.
0: I don't think we'll um, ever see that again.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think so. Remember those good old days? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so I managed to to pick up these flights, and I I called Liv, and I said, Liv, do you want to go to Hawaii? And he said, no, I'm not really interested. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to book it. So I booked it, and uh, when I got home that afternoon, he's like, so what are you going to do in Hawaii? And I was like, I'm going to to go bone fishing. And he was like, well, if I'd known that, I would have said yes, (laughs) (laughs) but I thought I was going over for, you know, a a beach vacation. (laughs) I'll have to get a Um, tan
0: and drink some um, cocktails by the pool. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, Look, I'm still yet to land a bonefish. I did hook bonefish over there, Uh, but it's uh, it's quite interesting. I went to Waikiki and just fishing off the bank. um, If I went again, I would probably take some sort of uh, inflatable device uh, because it's uh, really reefy. It's like really rocky. So as soon as you hook one and they go for that one rip, tear and run, And they just cut you off on a bit of reef or a bit of rock and it's all over. And they're all big.
0: I had one of my good mates, him and his wife went there on their honeymoon. So he actually managed to get a bit of bone fishing done. And he said, yeah, same thing. It's quite a tricky fishery. Like it's by no means an easy fishery, um, but the size of the fish was really good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, And that was my, other than redfish, that was my first ever saltwater fly fishing experience like other than like you know some squid in south australia (laughs) so it was was a really sharp learning curve for me yeah (laughs) um you know and i i did catch some fish and it was it was great fun and i ended up i think i was there for 10 days or something and i stayed in a in a hostel and caused everyone headaches because i would get up at two o'clock in the morning (laughs) to go and chase these tailing bone fish (laughs) um (laughs) Just as they were coming back in from their nights partying, um, <laughs> uh, but no, it was good fun. I would, I would definitely go back again if the, if the chance came up.
0: It's um, I'm definitely keen just to chase a bonefish one day. Like my granddad, he actually um lived over some lived on the um Cocos Keeling Islands back in the fifties. Um, he used to catch them back then on like conventional gear. He yeah. got some timber sent over from WA, built himself like a little um. Uh, fishing ski and he used to paddle between the islands with bucktail jigs and that sort of thing I've got some photos of him holding up like two big bonefish at a time and he caught like big wrasse and gts and um pretty much like growing growing up hearing those stories from him I've always wanted to get over there and obviously now they've established a bit of a fly fishery over there and the the size of the bones is incredible
1: yeah yeah I mean from everything I've seen it looks like it'd be a great trip
0: yeah Itataki is another good one. Like, um, I know Yoshi's heading over there again early next year. He's asked me to tie him up a heap of flies. I tied up a heap of flies for him last trip and he did really well. And he said, Oh, yeah, can you do me some more? I'm going back. And he said, Yeah, it's hard fishing, but he said the size of the bones are really big. And he said, The GTs there, there's some absolutely monster GTs on the flats.
1: Yeah, I think if we were going to do an international. Saltwater trip, it would be for tarpon next because that's one to sort of tick off the list for us. Yeah. Um, it was supposed to be our honeymoon was chasing tarpon and we just never made it. We went in the van instead.
0: <laughs> you might have to catch up with um, Gus. He used to work for Manic. Like he, yeah, he spent yeah. a bit of time this season chasing him there and he's getting a new skiff built at the moment. So that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, he's in Flow Rider.
0: Yeah. So, no, it's definitely on yeah. the... Um, on the keys on the cards for me, I'm definitely keen to do it. It's just I think too, just going to Florida because of the um like the history of fly fishing there and the culture surrounding it. Like we just don't have anything like that over here. So I think it'd just be cool even just to walk around some of the streets there and go to some of those famous bars and um just to get out on the flats there it'd be an unreal experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I guess there's so much that um fly fishermen over here have taken from those like original guides over there and people that have fished over there and come back with ideas and um yeah it would be something pretty special
1: oh look anytime you can travel anywhere at the moment it's good going
0: yeah i guess too like with travel it doesn't always have to be like exotic lodges it's like if there's a if there's a will there's a way um like as you said like you flew over on a, a cheap flight you stayed in a hostel like if you really want to do it, you can make it happen with a few sacrifices. It doesn't have to be the, the $10,000 US trip. Um,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm yet to be on one of those trips.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, a bit unattainable for most of us.
1: Yeah, I look, I work enough. I don't need to work anymore to pay for for a trip like that. Maybe one day, but <laughs> just to see... See what it's like, you don't I'm want to turn happy. those
0: double shifts into triple shifts. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm pretty happy just going and slogging it out and working it out.
0: Yeah, have you got yeah. any more trips um, within Australia planned for the rest of the year, or
1: uh, back to Tassie in October? Uh, and no, no. After that, it's 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 pretty much to. Tasmania and March. Uh, sorry, New Zealand in March. I might try and get over to Victoria for a few days. Um, or New South Wales to like the snowies or something for a few days. Yeah.
0: And the season just opened in Victoria, didn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, last week, so
0: Yeah, I've seen quite a few excited people getting out and posting up their photos and that sort of thing, so
1: Yeah, you know, it's um you know, it's not too far. It's only sort of twelve hours to go over and fish some rivers. Um, so, you know, if I get a, a few days that I can spare, I'll just nip over and, you know, have a, have a recce trip.
0: Yeah. Where do you reckon some of your favorite, like for your trout waters and that sort of thing in Australia? Like would Tassie be hands down your favorite or is it Victoria or New South Wales?
1: Uh Tassie's, Tassie's my favorite. I just, I love that you can, you can go to any bit of water anywhere in the state, any bit of fresh water, and there's trout in it. Um, and, and every fishery is different and the fish are smart there. Like they're harder to catch in Tasmania. Um, but uh, it's also the, the difference in the waters. I mean, you've got lakes that you can fish by boat. You've got lakes that you can fish by bank. You've got the western lakes which you can hike to and sight fish, you've got all of those rivers, uh, you know, in the lowlands. Um, and I mean, slowly we've been sort of, uh, discovering more of those, uh, smaller rivers and creeks, uh, further South. Um, yeah, it's just, just, there's something to do, something different to do every day if you wanted to.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing, like you look at even like the Western Lakes, how many lakes there are, like there's literally thousands of lakes through, throughout Tassie, like there's just always something new to explore there and you've got yeah, your highlands, lowlands, rivers, lakes, the whole lot, so it's got pretty much everything and you've got such a healthy um, population of wild brown trout there and you've got rainbows, a few brookies in a couple areas, so it's, it really has something to offer for everyone.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the the size is is never going to compare to some of those fish coming from New Zealand rivers. Uh, but they're still great fun to catch.
0: And I guess to a lot of people would like the technical aspect of the fishing in Tassie as well. Um, like certain areas in New Zealand, obviously, the fish can be a bit more willing. Um, whereas if you've got to like start using full fluorocarbon leaders and that sort of thing and really be wary and like, have your presentation like a hundred percent on point. Um, it'd be a bit more rewarding to having to work a bit harder for those fish too.
1: Ah, uh, there's definitely something about working for a fish. Yeah, um, it's 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 like the harder it is to catch them, the more enjoyable it is. <laughs> <laughs> As long as you do catch it in the end.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's nothing worse than a donut, but as long as you've learned something <laughs> along the way, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, there's been plenty of donuts. <laughs>
0: yeah. And with, um, with Lubin's YouTube channel, you don't obviously don't like getting behind the camera a whole lot, but do you help um, a bit with like the editing and that sort of thing, or is that pretty much Lubin's little baby that he, he does himself?
1: No, that's all Uh, Lubin. For the first year or so, I I did all the filming with a big production camera Uh, and it was, yeah, it was a nightmare. (laughs) I don't know how he does it. (laughs) I don't know how he does it and manages to fish now, like – it's, yeah, it's, there's so much to it and it just like standing there and watching someone else fish for hours on end, especially with the pressure of having to perform, which means it's always worse than when the camera's off. It's, it just did my head in like, <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't hack it. So he, I think he runs like two or three GoPros and, and edits it all himself and he's just got the GoPros going the whole time.
0: I guess that's um, the beauty these days too with things like GoPros and drones. You can do a lot of it yourself and the editing software is getting better. Laptops and that are getting better for when you're travelling and it it would make life a lot easier than early days of people having to do it with film and slides and all that sort of thing.
1: Absolutely. I think in the last two months I've seen Lubin on three different magazine covers and they're all with selfies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like <laughs> that he set up the camera on a remote and and taking a selfie
0: <laughs> and that's the thing like, the quality from these gopros and that sort of thing and even iphones these days um it it's impressive what you can do with this technology
1: yeah it's um like it's a, it's a big effort especially when he does those like cod trips and it's it's seven days of footage that he has to scrap together from f- three different cameras and it you know, it takes multiple weeks to edit. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he he does some pretty amazing stuff with it.
0: And are you still doing a little bit of writing for magazines and that sort of thing, or focusing more on just being able to work and fish? And I know you've um, doing some renos at home and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, look, I, I try not to. <laughs> I really only wrote uh, while we we're on the road because it was funding the, the travel. A means um, to an end, yeah. Yeah, now that I have a real job, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I try and just, you know, do my work so that I can go on cool trips and I'm trying to knock off a few more of those, you know, bucket list destinations and species over the next few years rather than focusing on the competition side of things so much.
0: I guess that you get one shot at life and you're the only person that can make stuff happen. Like it's not just gonna be handed to you. So if you want to if you've got a list of species you want to catch or destinations you want to fish, you just have to go right away how can I knuckle down and make it happen? Because, um, yeah, it's certainly not just gonna come on a silver platter.
1: Yeah, it's uh it's it's worth it, you know, it's worth the um short term pain for long term gain.
0: Yeah. Do you have any, um, any tips for anyone, like going back to your competition fishing, any tips for people that want to get into it?
1: I would say just just get in touch. You know, there's a, there's a Facebook page. You can, you know, join, send a message, and there's, there's always someone close by that is is willing to talk to you about it or, or take you out for a fish or have you come along to a competition, even just to watch, not even control. Uh, just to see what it's all about uh, and and I mean the, the biggest thing for me is that it's it's not scary <laughs> once once you get there, uh, you know everyone thinks that they're they're gonna rock up and they there's, theres there's two types. there's the people that think that they don't know anything and that they're gonna be embarrassed about how they fish and that's just not the case because everyone starts somewhere. And just because someone's a competition angler doesn't mean they're a great angler. So, you know, <laughs> there, there's no judgment within within the competition field uh, or there's the people that think they're going to do really well and bomb out and never come back again. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, <laughs> it takes both types. <laughs> uh, but I'd say with the competition, you know, I think people focus a lot on the fact that, you know, we count fish, we measure fish and, and count how many we catch. And it's like, uh, it's not a thing of arrogance because um, all of your flaws are pointed out on, in black and white for everyone to see, <laughs> you know, that's, that's just re- reality and that's how these anglers learn to get so much better is because they can see exactly where their abilities are lacking or where they need to improve.
0: And that's the um, thing you've got to have points you've got to have rules otherwise how would you measure those things?
1: Yeah exactly. I mean that's that's how any sport, any competition, any tournament works is that you have to have something to measure um, you know for us it's the number <laughs> but uh, yeah it's um, it's a very welcoming community um especially for those starting out um you know people are just always happy to help out in whatever way they can
0: yeah and do they have youth competitions as well or
1: no not yet there is a youth world championship yeah so there's the, so there is a world championship so um each year uh, most of the europeans send a team and the U.S. is very competitive within the youth as well. Um, I think New Zealand sent has sent to half a team once. Um, but we don't even have, I don't think we have a single competitor that could even qualify within the age bracket. Um, we just seem to start late here.
0: Yeah, okay. It would be cool to see something like that kick off, um, especially too because just to keep the sport growing, like getting younger people into it. Like there's quite a few initiatives to get kids fly fishing, but for that competition side of things and to represent the country overseas, it'd be awesome to see um, a bit more of that happening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, a few years ago, the minimum age was was 16. So we really struggled because by 16, most of those kids, you know, were already ingrained in another sport. They were playing football or soccer or something like that. Uh, now it's dropped to 14. And we definitely have a few young kids, particularly in Tasmania, uh, that are keen as beans.
0: I think that's probably a good age, too. Because, like, when you get to 16, you're starting to get to that age where school probably bat- uh, matters a bit more in um, your later years to, yeah, you know, whether you're going for an OP or like if kids are going off to get an apprenticeship or something like that. Whereas at 14, you've still got a bit more time on your hands and you're not worrying about, right, oh, what am I doing after school? So it's, it probably is a good stage for me to get into it.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, it's amazing how quick the kids pick up on things that adults don't. Yeah. Um. You know, there's three young lads in particular in Tasmania that Lubin and I have taken fishing a couple of times, uh, and they're incredible. Like, <laughs> they can cast, and they know when to change flies, and they understand how to fight fish, and how to wade, and, I mean, they're only little, so (laughs) the the wading is, you know, difficult. Um, But they're, you know, they're incredibly talented and they're going to be very, very wicked little competitors in a year or two.
0: Yeah. We had a, um, like this year, we had a casting clinic here in Harvey Bay and one of the young lads that turned up, he would have only been probably eight or nine, and it was, I was so impressed that he actually got out of the car, like mum and dad came with him just to see how he'd go, but he was there with blokes like from sort of in their late 20s through to probably their late 60s. Um, he cast all day with them and by the end of the day he was casting a wicked loop. Like it was just so good to see someone so young getting into it and you could see him listening and like he was just like the little cogs were ticking and he was taking everything in and he'd be like, all right, is he going to be able to do it or like is he going to understand? And then next minute he's done exactly what, um, what Morsey was saying and that sort of thing. So it was so cool to see a young bloke like that getting into it.
1: Yeah, they're just little sponges. Everything goes in. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, uh, one of these lads, Lucas, he, uh, one of the very first times I saw him, sorry, him fly fishing, he saw fish just upstream uh, eating spinners up on the bank. And the way that he changed his fly, like wound in his line so that he could walk properly along the bank and then like stalked up to these fish. Like that's all instinctive. No one's taught him how to do that. He just understands it <laughs> because he started so young. That's and it's cool. like And all of us like old farts are fumbling around on the bank and falling over <laughs> and splashing around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just, it makes you think. <laughs>
0: I think it's um, it's a pretty cool time for fly fishing in Australia at the moment as well. Like there's definitely been a big resurgence the last few years and I hope it continues to grow because um, there's, yeah, more and more people getting into it. Like I, I see people, like it used to be, like I've worked in the shop since I was 14, I'll be 33 this weekend, and it used to be, oh, geez, a few times a year I'd have someone come in and talk about fly fishing and now pretty much every second day I'm talking to someone and they're, they're either coming in to buy some flies or talking about a combo and that sort of thing, and it's really good to see. And I think um, things like social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, it's been really good at growing it.
1: Yeah, fly fishing's cool again.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 I think, too, there's, um,
1: there's,
0: there's plenty of people, too, that have sort of done the um, started off bait fishing, got into lure fishing, and then they wanted to give themselves a bit more of a challenge again, so it's just that natural progression from there.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's a great sport.
0: Yeah. Well, we might wrap things up, Casey. I think we've covered quite a few topics here. Was there anything you wanted to add before we do?
1: No, I just want to say thanks for having me on.
0: That's okay. It was great having you on. It's good to have another chat again. And um, if anyone wants to have a look at what you've been up to, what's the best way, like Facebook or Instagram?
1: Uh, Instagram? Yeah. Uh, it's just Caseymatson.flyfishing.
0: Yeah, Cool. And hopefully we can catch up again soon if you guys are up this way and um, get out in the water for a fish. Absolutely. Right. Thanks again, Casey, and I'll um thanks, I'll talk to you Josh. again soon.
1: Yes.